So one of the things that I like so much about the Bible is that there's a redemptive story that starts in Genesis 3 and it continues all the way through and it ends in Revelation. The Old Testament comes before the New. Works comes before faith. The law comes before Christ. That's what Exodus 19 is really all about. It's a piece of that story and it's a really important piece. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to do a quick review of biblical history. If you know me, you know that I like to couch whatever text we're at in the context of the broader idea, right? So you want to understand the context of of what you're reading, right? So last time, I did uh, Exodus 17 two weeks ago, and uh, we were looking at God's purpose in difficult times, and we started with Abram. This time we're going to look at covenants, and we're going to start a little bit farther back. So we're going to look at what is a covenant, why does God make covenants, what are the conditions of the Mosaic covenant, what do we learn about God, what do we learn about man in this covenant, and what does the Mosaic covenant teach us about the new covenant, and what takeaways can we have as Christians? So we're going to start with creation, a little farther back. So God creates a universe and everything in it, and a pair of humans. Adam disobeys God with devastating consequences. That we tend to blame Adam, who we all know actually who is to blame. But we'll shoulder the burden for now. This is known as original sin. Now this becomes really important later. Original sin refers to The original sin doesn't mean the first sin. Original sin means the consequences that that first sin have on us. Those consequences are estrangement. What does that mean? Sila in the back, she's super cute. It turns out, however, that she's an enemy of God. Right? That's what we're born into. It's super important to see that. We as humans are in this point in time where we need help. We are actually born into a situation that we cannot extricate ourselves from, and we need that help. So the human race grows rapidly and becomes exceedingly wicked. Noah finds favor with the Lord. He builds an ark. God brings a flood, destroying all living creatures on dry land. The inhabitants of the ark survive this deluge. So, we come to the Noahic Covenant. Now, there's kind of five. It depends on how you want to slice and dice it. Some say seven. I tend to think five. Five major covenants. The, some see the, the Adamic Covenant as the first one. We're going to treat the Noahic Covenant as the first one. For me and, and many others, the Adamic Covenant is more like a directive. Do this or else, right? The Noahic Covenant is an agreement, however, right? So the, the, what, what is it? God, after destroying the earth with his flood, all living creatures on land, because every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, he establishes a covenant with him that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. So three questions. Number one, what is a covenant? 
Number two, who are the parties involved? Number three, what are the responsibilities of each party in this covenant? So we're going to go over it in more detail later. For now, we're just going to go to the next one. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Abram was born in Ur of the Chaldees in Iraq. When he's 70, he's called to go to Canaan, where God makes a covenant with him. Here's the covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what are the three questions again? What is the covenant? Who are the parties involved? And what is the responsibility of each party? Abraham to Moses. Abraham to Moses. Abraham has Isaac, has Jacob. God orchestrates events such that Jacob's family, entire family ends up in Egypt where they sit for 400 years. This family swells from 70 people to somewhere around a million, north of a million, a lot of people. Moses is born in Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's court. At the age of 40, Moses flees to Egypt, settles in Midian. Midian's in Saudi Arabia. It's on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. At 80, he's commissioned by God to liberate Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Moses returns to Egypt, leading the Israelites out of bondage, destination of promised land. So the first really important thing I want everyone to understand tonight. How old was Noah when he was called to build the ark? 550 years old. How old was Abraham when he was called? 75. How old was Moses when he was called? 80. What does that tell you? God trusts old people. Thank you. It's a reused joke, but it works. So we're at Exodus 19. So let's read verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, how long had they been traveling? Three months. Very good. And by the way, I love when people respond. I hate when people just sit there. So please do. Please do respond. Three months. When is the new moon? Does anybody, does anyone even know what a new moon is? Sorry? It is once every month. Very good. But what does it look like in the sky? No moon. No moon. It's the opposite of a full moon. Yeah. I had no idea. That's how they, they're gauging time, right? They're gauging time. How many new moons in a year? Twelve. 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 Very good. Yep. So that's how, you, that's how they tell time. Three months, right? Is this Moses' first visit to Mount Sinai? No. Most scholars believe that Mount Horeb, where the burning bush was, is the site of Mount Sinai. 
Now, it gets a little tricky later on, but most people believe that Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. That's when he says, whom shall I send? I will go with you. This shall be the sign for you that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Right? That's kind of your first clue that actually Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same, same place. So how long will they remain at Mount Sinai? A year. They're going to spend a year there. In Bible, they're going to spend Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way up to halfway through Deuteronomy, an enormous chunk of the Bible they spend at Mount Sinai. Right? And this is, this is where they get started. So what is Mount Sinai like? They're going to spend a year there. It must be really nice. So that's Jabal Musa. That's Mount Sinai on the left. That's the traditional uh, uh, view, the, uh, the location of Mount Sinai. It's on the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. So on the left, where it says Goshen, that's Egypt. That's Africa. That's the continent of Africa. The, the V in the middle is, is Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. On the right, Midian, that's Saudi Arabia. So Mount Sinai is at the base of the Sinai Peninsula. The Kind of the, there, there is another proposed location, which is on the, uh, the, the east of the Gulf of Aqba on Midian, but most people think it's, it's, it's right there. Now, in Galatians 4.25, Paul mentions Mount Sinai in Africa when he's talking about the two uh, covenants. But it's important to remember that Arabia in, in the Bible encompasses all of Saudi Arabia and the Sinai Peninsula. So we're still okay with Mount Sinai being there. That, it's not excluded. However, and as well in Exodus, like I just said, Mount Horeb is, is, is located. But I'm, I'm sorry, let me, let me repeat that. Uh, in Exodus, they locate Horeb in Midian on the east side. Okay, so... All of this just to explain that there's, there's some confusion about exactly where it is, although the, the traditional view is it's, it's right there, Mount Sinai. The view from the summit, I mean, it's pretty, but does it look like an inviting place? Desolate. Does it look like a lot of animal life there? Plant life? Market basket? No. Pretty grim. Now, they started off, and I was coming up here, I, I heard that today actually is a, um, or this week is a, a Jewish celebration of when the Exodus started. Right? I, I just heard that on the way up, so I don't, I don't have any more information than that. It's June 1st, essentially. How long were they traveling? Three months. So they landed here in late July or August. What's the weather like in Sinai in July and August? Hot. How hot? Really hot. Like 120 degrees hot. Wicked hot. No water in this really hot. And they spend a year there. Suffice to say, it's very difficult terrain. Not a fun place. So, uh, uh, verse 3. So there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to, the, went up to God. 
So they, they, they come to this huge mountain. And remember, this mountain is 1,000 feet high. So they're at the base. And Moses goes up the mountain. The Lord calls them, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Remember how they got there. Right? There's a cut. It wasn't, they didn't just stumble upon this place by accident. God brought them to that exact point, leading them with a with cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. So Moses goes up. So in this case, Moses is kind of acting as a mediator, right? God's going to talk to Moses. Moses talks to the people. So Moses is representing God to the people, and the people to God. So he's kind of an intermediary. So they got pursued out of Egypt. They're hungry. There's no food. There's no water. And yet, it says in verse 4, how I bore you on eagles' wings. So the first thing that really jumped out at me was that being born on eagles' wings doesn't always mean margaritas on the beach. It really doesn't. Sometimes it can be incredibly difficult. There's a, um, there's a, there, there's a, um, a, a poem about footprints in the sand. I don't know if you've, you've heard it, right? And the, the idea is, is that this guy looks back and uh, all the images of his life, and he sees these two footprints. When, th when things are good, there's, there's two pairs of, there's two sets of footprints. But when things are bad, there's only one. And he says, hey, you know, when, um, when things were tough, you abandoned me. And he says, no, no, I, I carried you. Now, it, you know, it's a stupid dorm room poster, right? But it's very true. Right? That's how it looks a lot of the time, right? It is very often... Very often, and the older you are, the more this resonates. It is very often the most difficult times in our lives when he's the most obvious. So, who goes up to the Lord Moses? Was the trip out of Egypt uneventful, unstressful? Not really. It was pretty stressful. And yet, it specifically says, I bore you on wing eagle's wings. What is he emphasizing in this passage? Human shortcomings. Now, if I was doing this, so here's the picture. I bring you out of Egypt. I bring you to a mountain. I'm about to present what? The law. I'm going to give you a set of rules. Why? I'm starting this redemptive purpose. I'm starting this reconciliation, right? You're, an, you're on another side of a gulf, and I need to close that. If I was God, well, how would I start? I would start by reminding them how bad they were. I would say, look, you guys messed up here. You messed up here. I would just list that out, and I'd say, okay, now I have to do this, right? That's not what he does at all. He starts by reminding them how good he is, not of their failures at all. So that really, really, really jumped out at me. What he emphasizes here is God's goodness and power, not the human shortcomings that have led to all this pain and suffering that's reverberated through all of life. Uh, verse 5. 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Other than the cross, there's probably no set of verses more powerful and more important in the redemptive plan than this. That's the one thing we've really got to get our arms around. I'm glad I got 19 and I didn't get like 18. That was a tough one, right? There wasn't a whole lot to say, but 19 has an enormous amount of meat in it, and it's that. So, three questions again. What is the covenant? Who are the parties involved? What are the responsibilities of each party? So before we, we kind of dig into the details of the Mosaic Covenant, let's ask a simple question. Why does God make agreements with humans? He doesn't have to. It never, that's another thing that just jumped out at me. It's like, you don't have to do that. God's not in any position. He, he's not obliged to do anything. We're in no position to bargain. He can just dictate. And yet, he actually enters into agreements. He actually, they call it condescending. He actually condescends and says, Randy, let's reason together. Let's talk about this. The creator of the universe condescends and makes an agreement. Why? So I think the simple answer is, when you enter into an agreement, you're choosing. And it's very important that we have the ability to freely choose to spend eternity with him. That's what this reality is. This reality is about people deciding who wants to spend eternity with him. That's the whole point of this entire thing. And that, uh, that choosing, that act of choosing, is very, very important. And that's why he enters into covenants. He's starting, right? He even started with the Noahic covenant, saying, here, I, I agree to do this. He didn't, have to, he didn't even have to tell us that he was never going to do it again. But he did. Because, again, you've got that redemptive plan that's unfolding, all the way from Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation. So, let's look at what a covenant is. So the simple definition is, <clears throat> it's an agreement between two parties. Now, I think the first reaction should be, <laughs> humans are entering into an agreement with God. It sounds odd right off the bat, right? Why would God do something like that? So there's two types. There's a conditional in an unconditional. A conditional says, if you do this, I will do that. An unconditional just says, I'm going to do that. That becomes really, really, really important. Because we need to know the conditions of the cross. For example, we all, every single one of us is going to stand before God. <clears throat> 
When we do, he's going to say, why should I let you in? Now, my answer is going to be, I'm with him. That's it. Okay? That's it. That's all I got. But what if he says, that's great. But did you also know that you had to be blonde? That's a problem. Because I'm not. Right? So the terms of the covenant are really, really crucial. Right? There's an entire field of theology called soteriology that has to do with understanding the terms of the covenant. So, like I said, now I I do want to make a point here. Um, Has anyone ever heard of covenantal theology and dispensational theology? Okay, so I'm not embracing one or the other. I'm not a covenantal theologian. I'm not a dispensationalist theologian. I think Calvary Chapel, if anything, is definitely more dispensational theology than covenantal theology. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm not saying we're, we're covenantal theologians at all. We're just kind of looking at the nature of these covenants. And again, there's five. Noahic, unconditional. Abrahamic is conditional. No, the Mosaic covenant, conditional. Davidic and New Covenant, uh, 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 on the cross, we're not going to get into tonight, but they are, uh, Davidic is unconditional, and the new is conditional. So the conditionals, the conditions become incredibly important. This, by the way, is um, one of the most damaging uh, and dangerous aspects of, of what you see now. It's called progressive theology. And most of it revolves around the idea of universalism. And the idea there is that everybody gets in. God is love, everyone gets in. And if you can just imagine a progressive theologian showing up at the last judgment, and God says, why should I let you in? And he says, well, everybody gets in. That's the wrong answer. So, again... Super important. So let's go back and look at these covenants again. The Noahic. I'm only got like, I'm running late. I have to hustle through. It's unconditional. <clears throat> there is no requirement for man. God makes a unilateral agreement that no, it, this will never happen again. The promise is based upon God's faithfulness. That's it. Because we know of it, we can trust that it will, ha- will, it will never occur again. So what's the covenant? Never again shall a flood destroy the earth. Who are the parties? Man and God. The Abrahamic covenant, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on the conditions, right? Because it's so important. Is the Abrahamic covenant conditional, conditional or unconditional? So it's split. Some people say because when it's discussed, there's nothing, there's, there's seemingly no conditions here, right? Doesn't seem to be. If you if you look, there's nothing that God says, Abraham, you have to do this, then I will do that. It's not there. It seems to be unconditional. However. Circumcision, in Genesis 17, there's a, the, a story of how uh, Zipporah, uh, Moses was going to enter 
the prom, uh, uh, Egypt. And what was the problem? He was uncircumcised. So Zipporah had to fix that situation immediately. God was actually going to kill him at that point until his wife stepped in. Everyone, heard, everyone knows that, that, that episode. So I, I side with the people that say that's actually conditional. That's not, a, um, that's not an add-on. It's not a sign. Circumcision is not a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's actually a condition of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. <clears throat> so conditional or unconditional? Conditional. What are the conditions? Obey my voice and keep my covenant. What is God's, what is God doing here? He's going to establish Israel as a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So, what's the covenant? That's the agreement. Who are the parties involved? Israel and God. What are the responsibilities? We just went over them. So let's, little, let's look a little, little carefully at, the, at, at man's... So, and again, the Mosaic Covenant, incredibly important to understand what the, what the conditions are. So let's look at what man's conditions are here. So what does it mean? So uh, their, their responsibility was to obey his voice and keep his covenants. What does that mean? They have to obey the law. And the law is going to be laid out. I don't know if Jeremy's plan is to continue Exodus, Numbers, you know, all the way through. We'll see. But it's tedious, but it's very useful because you see all of the, all of the, the, all of the laws, the rules, the regulations, which they had to adhere to. Those keeping that is what, they are, is what they're looking at. This is a covenant of works, not of faith. It's part of a broader covenant of grace, Question, why did they agree to this? This is like the third thing that just jumped out at me when I was studying this. Justin. Justin's an athletic guy, right? So let's look up. I can't see it because the lights are in my eyes. See the peak? Can you jump up and touch that? You're sure? Have you ever tried it? So give me a sense. I'd like, you know, he's shaking his head. For those on the video, Justin thinks he can't do it. Well, let me ask you a question. Okay, that's different. Justin knows he can't do it. Now, are you 95 or 100? 95% sure or 100% sure? Well, let's try someone who's a little more athletic, a little younger, a little faster, a little stronger. <laughs> Matthew. Can you jump up and touch it? <laughs> Have you tried it? So it's odd that I've got two guys they've never tried something, and yet they're pretty confident that they can't do it. We're just going to put a pin in that, and we're going to come back to that. 
So what are the terms, what are God's responsibilities? God's responsibility, verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what does God agree to? He agrees to establish them as establish Israel as his treasured possession. Now, why? This is like the fourth thing that really jumped. Why does he say, for all the earth is mine? I think there's kind of two ways to look at that. One, you could say that he surveyed all of humanity and all of these nations, and all of these are his, but he selected this one small group. That's what it means. Another way to look at it, and kind of the way that I favor, is he's saying, I can do this. I can actually do this because I'm sovereign over everything. I have the ability to deliver on this covenant. That's kind of, but kind of either way works. Um, as well, this, this holy, there's so many things in the Bible that have two meanings. Right? The word holy um, has, uh, uh, it's used as set apart, uh, like holy things on the tabernacle, they're set apart. Um, it also means uh, righteous, like the Lord is holy. He's set apart, but he's also morally perfect. Right? That, so that would, you know, so it has those, kind of those, those two meanings. Um, so to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, what's involved there? We remember that priests represent God to the people. So what God is saying here is he's going to establish Israel as his conduit, as his representative. Israel should, would represent God, just like the priest represents God to the people, Israel would represent God to the world. And that, that's, by the way, a mandate that we Christians have, that we are to represent God to the world. So the other thing that he promises is to establish Israel as his treasured possession. So let's quickly look at that. What does that mean? And I just grabbed a, a bunch. You, you probably can't read them all. But each one, I'm not going to read them all because I'm running late. But each one has to do with God unilaterally selecting Israel as special upon which he's going to set his affection. This is another like, perfect point of time. I wish I had more time to talk about uh, Calvinism and Arminianism um, and how this kind of plays into that, this kind of this unilateral selection. kind of play It starts to articulate the differences between the two positions. We are Arminian, by the way. Um, but yeah, it would be, if I had more time, I would. But the, 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 the point here is that he's unilaterally selecting them To serve a purpose. So, I wanted to quickly compare the old and the new. So both are conditional. The old is if you obey my voice, then you would be God's treasure possession. The new, if you accept by faith the atoning work of Christ, then you inherit eternal life. The mediator of the old is Moses. The mediator of the new 
is Christ. Mediator means that which stands between two parties, the thing which, which mediates. The location is Sinai of the old. The location of the new is Golgotha. When, by the way, it, where, where, where does the Old Testament end? Does anybody know? Barry, who said that? Rodney. Rodney's the man. Yes, people say, oh, Malachi. Mm, not really. It ends at the cross. That's where the old covenant ends. Rodney's been studying. Okay, some more comparisons. Jesus came to establish a better covenant, a new covenant in his blood. It, the new is perfect, whereas the old, imperfect. The new is perfect, uh, I'm sorry, the new is for the asking. <clears throat> the old one is very hard. So, question, if the new is so much better than the old, <clears throat> why do the old? What was the point? It's a really good question. Why? Old wine and new wine, yep. The, old, the new wine would burst the flask, the old wine, yep. Right, the, the, what, there's an appropriate understanding of each situation. <clears throat> so, ultimately, the old covenant cannot provide a final sacrifice for sin. It has to re be repeated over and over and over and over. The new covenant, once and done, right? That was, the, that was striking the rock at Rephidim and speaking to the rock at Kadesh Barnea. That was the whole allegory there that we were to learn, that Christ was struck once, and thereafter, water from the rock is for the, for the asking. You don't have to strike the rock again. Which covenant can, men, can we actually do? The, the new. We, we can't possibly do the old. So then what is the purpose? We're about to enter this. It's five books of the Bible. It's an enormous amount of material. Why do it? Thank you. The pastor's wife, of course, she'll know. She cheated. She jumped the gun. Yeah, you're supposed to wait. Sorry. First... <laughs> First off, the new is not a reaction to a failure in the old, right? <clears throat> it's not like God said, we'll try this first, and then we'll have a fallback if it doesn't work, but let's wait and see. It's not how it works. There was a purpose. Did God enter into a covenant with man knowing that man would fail? Yes. Yes. So why? What is the purpose here? This becomes really important. The law acts as a mirror, right? And it's right there in Romans 7. There's nothing wrong with the law. Let's not say that there's something wrong with it. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is us. Therefore, no one's declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Why did Matthew know he couldn't reach the peak? How does he know that? He has never tried it. Yeah, there was Justin. Never tried it, yet they know. And nobody, nobody questioned them. Nobody said, well, come on. Why? They know themselves. They know their limitations. They know what they're capable of doing. They know what they can't do. Now, why did, let's go back. Why did Israel agree? To, it's right there in verse 8. The people all, and we're at 8. I, oh, man, we're, no way I'm going to finish today. The people all responded together. Yet we will do everything the Lord has said. Did they agree? Yes. Right. The law serves as a mirror. At the time, they didn't know. That's the whole unfolding of the redemptive purpose, is you start with a bunch of polytheistic people that honestly, quite honestly, they don't have a clue how bad they are and how perfect God is. This step, this is one step in helping us understand. It paves the way to the cross. You can't appreciate the cross until you've tried to get yourself around it. You first have to be brought to your, your knees, your inability. That's what this is all about. And, you know, honestly, when I look at it, I think, you know, we're here in 2023. We really owe that group of people a debt because they went through it. And you would have done the same exact thing. Every single one of us would have acted just as ignorantly and naively. G. Campbell Morgan, um, <clears throat> it, was, it was great. You know, when I prepare for these things, I, I read the whole thing and I kind of ask the questions that I would ask and I prepare all this stuff. And the last thing I do is I, I'll go listen to other sermons and um, because I, I kind of want to make sure that, you know, I'm not... <laughs> way off. Um, and uh, it was great because I was listening to David Guzik, and he quoted uh, G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was um, the, he preceded uh, Martin Lloyd, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in Westminster Abbey, a famous guy. But he says, G. Campbell Morgan describes the Israeli response as their answer was sincere but ignorant. Right? They thought, but there was no way. So as we go through this, it's super important to realize the purpose was to correct that. And that's our purpose now. Yes, we're on the other side, but that's the danger. As Christians, you know, you, you get, you just get too familiar with things, I think. And, and you, 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 we kind of fail to take uh, seriously, this 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 requirement, right? The cov the agree the, the the terms of the covenant, right? You, we get to pick. You can pick. You can try by works, or you can try by faith. It's up to you. Um, and I think faith is so easy sometimes that we 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 tend to we tend to get a little too familiar with this. But anyway, that maybe that's just me. So here. 
the law acts as a, as a severe schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. So we've gotten seven verses done. So Moses came and called all the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And again, you've got Moses representing God to the people. This becomes actually really important later. So, so far, God's talking to Moses, Moses talking to the people. All the people answered together and said, let's rock and roll. That sounds great. And Moses reported the words, so he goes back up the mountain, and Moses reports the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that people may hear <coughs> when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So what's going on there? Has uh, any white-collar uh, cubicle-dwelling drones in here, like myself? Um, uh, you know what a skip level is. A, sk a skip level, if you don't know it, it's when your boss's boss comes and talks to you. It's called a skip level. Now, sometimes skip levels are fun. I'm sure Justin's heard of the term. Sometimes they're fun, right? But sometimes they're not, right? One thing's for sure, if a skip level's happening, it's serious. One way or the other, it's serious. Otherwise, that she would just tell your boss and she would tell you. But if the skip level happens, it's really serious. They're doing that to impress upon you the importance of the situation. That's exactly what God's doing here. God, Moses came up and said, yep. And God said, all right, I'm going to come down, and I'm going, to I'm going to ask you directly myself. What was the reason? So that they would remember this forever. God wants to create a situation that would, would sit in the psyche of humans for 3,400 years, which it has, right? So num uh, verse 10. So when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long, a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. Now again, consecrated had the two, you know, it means preparing, getting prepared. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the women and do not go near a woman. So what's happening here? God is going to descend. God is on the top of this 1,000-foot mountain. He's going to descend. And he's telling them, oddly, there's a perimeter. You can't, anyone in the military here? You establish a perimeter. What happens? You guard the perimeter. Why is the perimeter there? It's to separate the in from the out. The enemies from, the, you know, the, the, not the us. <laughs> right? That's the whole point. Why does he do this? Right? Becomes really important. The washing of the clothes is, base, is very just a symbolic action. The idea there is that they were to cleanse themselves before God. 
Um, why is the requirement for abstinence? So I'm not going to go into what abstinence means. We're, we're adults here. We know what it means. Why? Again, I think familiarity, that term, not treating an encounter with the respect that it deserves. That's what's in view here, is making sure they understand you have to treat this seriously. So why is God so concerned with being treated with such respect? Is this guy like a tyrant that demands that everyone that comes before him bow and scrape? Why does he demand that? Because he's God. Because he's holy. Here's a couple of, there's a famous example. Uh, uh, Aaron's two sons. Uh, Aaron was the first of the Levitical priesthood ordained into this priesthood. Um, there was uh, rules set out uh, for how they were to present fire. Uh, two of his sons, uh, it's not super clear what they did, which broke the rule, but they broke the rule. And when they did, they were vaporized instantly. One non-negotiable with God is that he insists he will be regarded as holy by anyone who draws. You know, I think if there's one thing, that's, that's, I have a hard time enforcing that in my own thought life, you know, just recognizing what God is, you know, and I tend to approach him. Yes, we, we, we now approach the, the throne of grace freely and we have free access to it. The temple's been, yes, that's all true. At the same time, it's the same God. Uh, another one, uh, David was transporting the ark. Another story I'm sure everyone's familiar with. David was transporting the ark. How was the ark to be transported? Between poles. They were supposed to carry it on poles. How were they transporting it? They threw it in the back of a cart. And they were, you know, that So they were going along. And uh, one of the oxen stumbled in the cart tip, and one of the priests said, uh, put his hand up to stabilize it. Bang. Vaporized them instantly. Why? They broke the rule. You're not supposed to do that. <clears throat> it's very important that we understand the nature of God and the nature of man. We're very, very, very different. What happens What happens when we're in close proximity to God? Can anyone see his face and live? Moses later on says, you know, I, I, I want to see your face. Show me your face. What does he tell him? No, you can't do that. Why? It, again, is, is this a situation where God's wanting to make sure that we treat him with the respect he deserves um, because, you know, he needs to have his ego stroked, right? No, that's not it at all. He's actually protecting us. 
That's what these are all about, is protecting us. Um, you know, I grew up on a farm, and uh, <clears throat> it was a, <laughs> a very poor farm. I don't know if everyone's seen Clarkson's farm. Everyone see that show? Well, the tractors they have on the Clarkson's farm, yeah. We didn't have anything like that. We had like, I, I think all of the equipment on our entire farm, I'd be shocked if it cost 5,000 bucks to, to buy everything in there. Um, we had a guy come out, he sold us a hay baler one time. So he comes out and he's, he hops on a tractor and he's got the, the baler on the back and he's doing it. But he's being super, super careful, like super careful. And um, after, at the, at the end of it, my dad came up to me and he goes, well, you know, he says, when I saw the guy baby in the tractor like that. He says, I thought he, he didn't want to break the baler because he, you know, he was selling us this baler. But actually, he says, now I understand. Nah, he, was, he didn't want to break the tractor. Right? That's what's going on. God is protecting us. He's not demanding anything to have his uh, 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 ego stroke. It's all about protecting us. So... <clears throat> You know, I wrote this down. Um, how, does this, how do we apply this today? I, it's something I do, and it's a bad habit, you, where you've got the Bible in one hand and Twitter in the other, right? And that's not good, okay? So, Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Is God angry here? No. There's no indication that he's angry. Was it scary? <laughs> I love the part where it says they took their stand. You know, the, the imagery there is like, right? They kind of got lined up against the wall, and uh, they were pensive. So how did Moses react? Later on in, Hebrew, in Hebrews, he said, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Can you imagine what that must have been like? How have others uh, reacted? Uh, I'm going to burn through this because we're running late. Um, suffice to say that every time a human comes into contact with God, the reaction's always the same. Always. Face down, instantly. Just proximity to his holiness highlights our unholiness. Job, same thing happens with Job. Same thing. I missed one. But, so contrast with now. So now we're encouraged to draw, with confidence, we can draw near to God. To find grace in the, in, the, in the time of need. That's Hebrews 4.6. We have confidence to enter the holy place. It's a very different situation now. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, there's... 
So, Exodus 19, back to Exodus 19 again. And the Lord said to Moses, here we go, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set the limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people. Again, why is he repeatedly warning people? And he singles out the priests. It's almost like the priests are like, well, you know, the common, right, the rules are for the common people. I don't have to really pay attention. He, he singles them out and says, you guys too, everyone is to obey this rule. Breaking out, what does that mean to break out against them? So the, the idea there is that it's kind of like a dam breaking, like a flood, right? That, that, that's what would happen. I, I don't, we've, we've never had, there was a, um, a uh, comment that hit Russia uh, in the 1910, you know, in, in the early 1900s. And when that comment hit, the blast was, it, it's still there today. It was an unbelievable blast radius. Um, the same with, for example, the meteor that hit the, the Yucatan Peninsula that wiped out the dinosaurs, right? You've got, you've got kind of some, Similar things which we can look upon and say is kind of like that, but I think if, if, if God were to actually come into our presence now, I think that would be it. So, again, in all of these cases, is God angry? But why is it deadly to see him? Again, it's the contrasting natures of the two. So, takeaways. We kind of hustled through the end because I wanted to be respectful of the time. There's five major covenants. The Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New. We talked about why God enters into covenants with man. It has to do with choosing. This entire reality is about us choosing the offer. We heard that Justin and Matthew can't, for some reason, jump up, and they can't. That's the whole idea. The offer, Christ is up there, and he's reaching down, and he's saying, just grab my hand, and I will pull you up. Those are the, that's the situation. You can try jumping, or you can just accept the offered hand. The problem always was is that we as humans had no idea that we couldn't do that. So we actually signed on for it and said, yeah, let's do it. Let's try. And spent the next 1,400 years trying to jump. And then finally God says, you see, now you understand. Now you've tried it enough. You've tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed. Now you're ready. Now you're ready for the cross. The cross is only good news once you've come to that point. So what's the outline? As a quick review, it, God brings Israel to Mount Sinai. God presents the covenant to Moses. Moses relays it to the people. Israel agrees to this covenant. Moses relays that answer to God. 
God tells Moses to have Israel get prepared for a skip level. Moses gathers Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, upon which God himself has descended. God calls Moses up again and warns him that they are to respect the boundaries that he laid out. So, again, what was the purpose of the Old Covenant? It's a teacher. It's a taskmaster. It's a mirror. It shows us what we're like. Covenants are a crucial part of that redemptive plan. And we're not covenantal theologians, but nevertheless, covenants are a crucial part of that unfolding redemptive plan. Salvation always has two steps. One, you have to understand the situation we're in. And then you have to understand and accept God's remedy for it. If you don't understand that, you will. <laughs> kind of everybody, everybody hopefully gets brought to the end of themselves. My testimony is that was me. Um, I, I, I actually didn't realize that um, that that was that I was that the requirement was that I had to jump. I, I, I just it just never occurred to me. So in my own life, when I, God made me a Christian, basically by setting me off on a path of attempting to jump for like 10 years. At the end, I, I finally kind of got through my head that actually the tomb is empty for a reason. The cross is there for a reason. And uh, my, mine's a little bit different than a lot of other people, but everybody goes through those two steps. Everyone has to be brought to the end of their own ability to jump across that divide. You have to understand there's a divide, and you have to understand you cannot get across that divide. That's what the Mosaic Covenant's all about. So I think that's... That's it. Questions? I always kind of... I haven't, I haven't got the, like, finish, <laughs> a clean finish. I haven't figured that out yet. But, uh, but Lord, uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I hope this, uh, this evening provided some useful information. I am thankful that you're here, and I just ask that, uh, that your presence overcomes my, my information, that, that people would walk away having heard and understood what the Mosaic Covenant What's the purpose? What it's all about? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.